Hello and welcome to the Sydney Environment Institute's Critical Minerals podcast series, a series that will unpack what critical minerals are, why they are important and what the big issues are in mining them. My name is Susan Park and I'm a Professor of Global Governance at the University of Sydney. I'm leading the Critical Minerals Research Project at the Sydney Environment Institute that investigates the extraction of critical minerals for a just and sustainable transition. In this episode, we'll hear from Dr Leanne Sinclair, a postdoctoral research associate in the School of Geosciences at the University of Sydney. We will discuss the global production networks of critical minerals and why this has given rise to geoeconomic issues. Leanne, we use critical minerals every day without realising it, from our phones to the battery in the electric vehicle we may have ridden to work. But those minerals have been on a long journey through global production networks and they've interacted with different communities and environments to end up in the palm of our hands in the case of our phones. If we think of solar panels, which have many critical minerals in them, like cobalt, copper and nickel, where have those minerals come from and who have they impacted along their journey? Hi, Susan. Thanks Thanks for having me on the podcast today. Absolutely thrilled to be here and talking about critical minerals. Uh, so it's, it's a very, very good question that, that you ask. And my journey to studying minerals and where they come from and, and the impacts of minerals really has started from that the other end of the, the global production network. So I've been looking for a little while now anyway at sort of traditional mining of, of minerals like coal, uranium, iron and, and gold mines. Uh, where it didn't matter too much what happened to those minerals once they were exported. So yeah, I was more more interested in studying what are the kind of what are the resistances, what are the impacts, what are the all around the individual mine sites, around the communities that surround them, that involve mining companies and the government. But as you say, now we talk about critical minerals and their use in renewable energy, their use in lithium-ion batteries for electric vehicles. You mentioned solar panels. The end uses of the minerals have suddenly become a very important part of the discourse and have become the justification for extracting ever-increasing amounts of of things like lithium, rare earths, you mentioned cobalt and and copper and nickel, these kind of of minerals. Um, And the justification for that is really about addressing the climate crisis, which unquestionably we have to do come to studying uh, global production networks as a, a, as a framework for understanding how the mine sites are connected to the, the end-use products is that suddenly we have a whole new set of actors that are taking interest in how minerals are being extracted, right? And really this has been led by sort of the electronics industry who was interested in it because they were buying gold and cobalt and tantalum from conflict zones. And now we get some of the big brand name auto manufacturers like your Teslas, your VWs, your Hyundais are becoming involved in attempting to raise standards around mining. What we're seeing is, is, is really more of a, a connection, more of a clearer connection between those impacts at the mine site and the end uses, in, both in terms of the justification for how the minerals are being used, why they're being extracted, but then also potentially how standards could be increased. That's really interesting, Leanne. Thanks so much for that. I guess one of the questions maybe I can ask you is is whether you think this is different 
in terms of all of a sudden, as you say, you've now got car makers that are really interested in where the mineral for the battery for the vehicle comes from. Do you think this is changing the the, the way in which we maybe buy cars? I think it. I think there is some uh, potential for some some different approaches to to be used to mining and like I said the kinds of actors that that are involved. So one thing we're seeing is new global governance mechanisms like the World Economic Forums, Global Battery Alliance, the Institute for Responsible Mining Assurance, these emerging new mechanisms that bring together that much wider range of actors and stakeholders. The question then becomes for me anyway, how can we really understand this new political economic and geography of extractive industries. How can we we understand the way that all these actors are coming together and making decisions and therefore the impacts of mining? And so I think I think listeners are probably also very familiar with talk of supply chains. This has entered this sort of popular vocabulary since all the disruptions that were happening around COVID. Uh, but while supply chains in themselves are really useful for understanding or or studying supply chains specifically are really useful for understanding material flows, for understanding bottlenecks and for tracing where minerals come from, they don't tell us as much about the the politics, the power and the conflicts that are happening around how those supply chains emerge and their impacts in at that local scale, at, in the regions where mines are being developed. So how do those regions where mining is occurring, how do they plug into global production networks and how does that actually change the outcomes for people on the ground? I mean, I think what you're pointing to is that we really need to start to think about what happens with the type of product that we choose as consumers. Like if we want an electric vehicle, should we be attendant to, you know, checking whether or not they've signed up to any specific certification standards? That's one potential avenue of thinking about how the the consumer, the end user, whether that's us with our electric scooters or if you're, you know, if you're well enough to be able to buy a Tesla or something like this, and you can check, you can uh, see has that has that company signed up to particular standards? How are they monitoring the environmental impacts that occur at, at the complete other end, at the beginning of the life cycle of that mineral? But there's other things in there as well. It's also about how can governments plug into global production networks to add more value domestically. It's also about how can communities, activists and NGOs use an understanding of the links along that chain uh, and all the different all the different suppliers and intermediaries along the way um, before that lithium you know finally ends up in a car that you drive around. How can all these different actors understand that network to get better outcomes? So we, we've spoken about um, the role that we play as consumers and, and that's um, quite often how we do think about the transition to, to renewable energy in order to address the climate crisis. But, of course, as you point out, we're also citizens and as citizens it's, um, it's, it's in some ways up to us to indicate to government what we would like to happen. So quite often um, climate change and uh, renewable energy can be an, ele- uh, an election issue, a hot button issue. If we could ask you a more specific question about the Australian government, what sort of things can they attempt to do to plug into global production networks? So we have quite a lot of critical minerals in this country. We are one of the top lithium exporters in the world. Um, what can we do beyond just digging lithium out of the ground? 
Yeah, that's great. I love the framing of that question too, where you talk about, yeah, we're not just consumers, um, we're not just trying to be ethical consumers, uh, but we're also citizens who participate in in democratic uh, processes that are not necessarily only limited to uh, uh, voting at at time of, a, of an election. Yes, you're right as well. Australia is, is the world's largest uh, lithium exporter with the second largest reserves of, of lithium. So this new global boom in, in critical minerals, is, we really are the lucky country once again. Um, we're doing quite well. Uh, so, so by way of background, some of the recent research that uh, uh, I've been doing together uh, with uh, Professor Neil Coe in, in the uh, School of Geosciences and Geography here at the University of Sydney, some of the research that we've started doing is looking at what are all the strategies that Australian governments, and I say governments because both the federal government through multiple different government agencies and at the state government levels, what are the strategies that they've been implementing and what do those strategies contain? And we found, so we found that there are 19 different critical mineral strategies that have been released uh, since 2019. And together they contain $4.6 billion of funding for critical minerals specifically. Right. Now, that does not include all of the general subsidies, all of the infrastructure provision, the incentives and, and tax exemptions uh, for the resources sector more generally. And most of that $4.6 billion is about attracting private capital into downstream processing. So what is really interesting about this, and this is what we refer to as um, value adding or plugging in or strategic coupling, there's a whole range of different technical terms for it. But essentially what it means is unlike the last boom, right, the last mining boom we had in this country was driven by coal and iron ore, which was mostly exported as, as raw ore, unrefined, mostly to China. But now we need to, to engage in this process of downstreaming, of value adding, which means refining and processing those minerals more onshore so that we can export a higher uh, value added product. And that does require some government support to get off the ground. For example, so instead of just e exporting uh, spodumene ore, which is the, the raw ore that contains lithium, instead of just exporting that ore in bulk to, for re further refining in China, can we refine battery grade lithium hydroxide, which can then be exported more directly further down that global production network to the companies that then turn that into batteries for cars and all other types of electronic products. And this is happening. And, and there are, well, there's one lithium hydroxide plant that's just come online in, in WA and there's a couple more in the pipeline. So this is happening with some government support. Rare earth elements is another big one, another crucial one. So the largest single government loan to date in the critical minerals sphere is a single loan of $1.25 billion from Export Finance Australia to Aluka Resources to build a rare earth refinery in, in Western Australia, which could end up being the largest such refinery outside of China. Those rare earth, those separated rare earth uh, elements will uh, are crucial ingredients for permanent magnets that uh, go into you know, wind turbines, electric vehicle motors. So they're crucial to all of these industries. Okay, this is a long way of coming back to your question, but uh, we know that, that mining and processing all of these minerals comes with costs. What we found uh, is that governments are doing the work, are funding this industrial upgrading, but there are significant environmental and social impacts uh, on biodiversity. You know, we've got an extinction crisis underway in this country, uh, water usage, for rare earth elements, there's a radioactive waste uh, element there as well. There's problems of abandoned mines, of rehabilitation. You know, I can go on. Uh, our current protections for um, 
Aboriginal cultural heritage and First Nations land rights in this country is 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 uh, appalling uh, and and needs urgent improvement. But none of these strategies, none of these nineteen strategies, really address those issues at all. So while we're upgrading industrial capacity, we're not upgrading environmental social governance standards or uh, First Nations rights. And starting to sort of be a, a tiny bit speculative here, but that is a dangerous and a risky situation to be in where we're embarking on new mining projects, new refining and upgrading projects. But if there are, well, and there already are, but if the conflicts and resistances emerge around, around new mining projects, that can jeopardise the, the whole project. Right, that can jeopardise the whole contribution to the energy transition. So this is this is high stakes. This is high stakes is what I'm saying, and that really not enough is being done to specifically in the critical mineral space to make sure that environmental social governance standards are up to spec. That's really interesting. Thanks for thanks for that that discussion, Leanne. I mean, I guess some of our um, audience might be a bit surprised by the comments that you're making, given that we are an advanced industrialised country that has a very, very long history of mining. Could you give us an, an indication of how you think a sort of global network analysis would mean for affected communities, for activists and for NGOs working on critical minerals? You're right. We are we are an you know, advanced industrial nation, and we do have relatively high uh, standards for for environmental management and, and and processes compared to some other places in the world. But that's a very low bar, right? That's that doesn't that doesn't actually mean a lot. You know, while while uh, industry and governments are making uh, are saying that our high environmental standards in Australia actually gives our exports a comparative advantage over other countries that have lower standards, and that's true, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't continually be trying to, you know, for example, address the biodiversity and extinction crisis that we're facing in in the country. So if we go and then come around to the question about how can activists, how can communities, NGOs, advocates, whoever, how can they use an understanding of global production networks, use the tools of global production network theory in order to engage, to, to lobby, to put pressure on, on these lead firms. If we go back to one of the core ideas of global production networks is that strategic decisions are made across a network coordinated by those global lead firms, those lead firms like your, your Teslas, VWs, uh, Apple, so on and so forth. How can communities that are affected by impacts of mining on the ground influence those companies to, you know, engage in the, the kind of mechanisms that I mentioned earlier, like IRMA, the Institute Responsible Mining Assurance, or other global governance mechanisms, or otherwise put pressure on their suppliers, their ultimate suppliers, the mining companies, to improve standards. Now, there is reason for some very cautious optimism here, which is an unusual thing for me to to admit um, for for anyone that knows me. But those governance standards that involve these powerful lead firms, they may actually have more incentive to control the risks to their reputation that are posed by community resistances, right? And so to to expand on that a little bit more, with global governance mechanisms to date, as your research, uh, Susan, um, shows, there are many gaps, many deficiencies in most Global governance mechanisms are voluntary. And part of the reason for that is that they're usually controlled by the 
they're, they're self-regulating. So they're usually, the mechanisms are usually, or the standards are written by the companies that are being regulated, right? So a classic example in this space is the International Council on Mining and Metals. And they're going to write standards that are going to make their members look good, right? So those, these new lead firms that are involved in global production networks of critical minerals like Apple, like Tesla, may, and I say may, it's a very big may, very big if here, uh, they may be more sensitive to reputational risk, to supply disruptions, to legal risks, and they may care less about the profitability at the point of extraction, right? Because most of the profit of Apple, most of the profit of Tesla comes from the further downstream points in the global production network where they're adding the most value. That's what they care about the most. So are they willing to impose stricter conditions at the point of extraction, at the lithium mine, at the rare earths refining facility, and discipline their suppliers in order to... And yet we spoke a little bit earlier about sort of, you know, consumer pressure, but what's potentially even bigger and more significant than the pressure from consumers is the risk of supply and supply disruption. If the supply of lithium and the supply of rare earths is disrupted because there's a community protesting or because activists have lodged a a court injunction or, or whatever the mechanism is, that disrupts supply and disrupts the entire supply chain, the entire value and profitability of that particular product for these companies, right? So there is reason to think that some of these new mechanisms that are specific to critical minerals might be more effective than, than the older style that we've studied for a long time. But I have a lot of questions about that, and these are, this is a proposition that I'm, I'm proposing, and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll have a lot more to say on this in, in coming months and years as our uh, research here progresses. So <laughs> I think you're right, Leanne. Yeah. There's so much more work to be done, isn't there, Thanks. on on trying to pass out, you know, which standards are greenwashing, which standards are actually helping to provide some sort of surety that um, that we have minimum standards for uh, for environmental impact and for for impacts on communities, particularly uh, for Indigenous communities. And obviously something that is, this is playing out around the world. Um, Australia, as you said, is is the lucky country in terms of the amount of minerals that we have and our history and experience with mining. But of course, we can always do better. Would you like to say anything about this concept of the circular economy? I'm kind of curious as to what your take might be. I certainly agree that we are the lucky country but the paradox in being the lucky country is is that it often means that we just sit back and rest and, 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 and rely on our luck rather than trying to continually improve. And I don't think we can do this uh, anymore based on, mentioned a couple of times, the, the various different uh, crises and various different problems that we're facing. In terms of circular economy principles, yes, making sure that the design of particular products like electric vehicles and lithium-ion batteries are recyclable and that there is processes that are adequate for recycling them from the beginning. And that's, that is a role. Australia can step into some of that space as well, particularly we might, might not be producing the batteries in the first place. That's most likely to be done in other countries who have the, the um, scale of industry required to do so. But we are going to have a lot of electric vehicles that it will be you know, nearing the end of life at, at some point, whether the last 10 years or 20 years, and we need adequate, proper recycling for that, which can then put those minerals back into circulation and reduce the, reduce the impacts on communities, on the environment, 
and on the the supply of of those minerals in, in the first place. Thank you, Leon. This has been a really interesting discussion, and I'm sure we're going to hear more uh, about this as demand for critical minerals continues to increase. Thanks, Susan. It's always a pleasure, always a pleasure to talk with you, and uh, I hope to do so again soon. This series is produced by the Sydney Environment Institute, a world-leading environmental research institute at the University of Sydney. This series is part of the Critical Minerals Research Project funded by the Sydney Environment Institute, the Australian Research Council and the Canadian Humanities and Social Sciences Research Council. We investigate the extraction of critical minerals for a just and sustainable energy transition. Stay informed about critical minerals environmental research by subscribing to the SEI podcast series on your favourite podcast app and learn about the greatest challenges of our time.